You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to Rudolf Steiner Audio. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Modern Art of Education. They were presented in Ilkley, Yorkshire from August 5th to the 17th, 1923. Lecture 1 is entitled Science, Art, Religion, Morality, given on August 5th, 1923. First in response to the kind greeting from Ms. Beverly to Dr. Marie Steiner and me, I can assure you that we deeply appreciate the invitation to give this course of lectures. Essentially my purpose is to show what spiritual science says about education and to describe attempts by the Stuttgart-Waldorf School to apply the educational principles arising from spiritual science. We gladly accepted the invitation to come to Northern England, and it gives me deep satisfaction to speak on a subject I consider important, especially since I am also speaking to those who arranged this course and have heard lectures on education from this perspective before. Thus I hope that there is more behind this conference than the determination of those who organized it, and I hope it shows that our previous activities are now bearing fruit. English friends of spiritual science were with us at a conference during Christmas before last when the Goetheanum, since taken by fire, still stood. That conference was arranged by Mrs. Mackenzie, the author of an able book on Hegel's educational principles, and the sympathetic appreciation expressed there makes one hope that it is not, after all, so very difficult to find understanding that transcends the limits of nationality. What I said about education at that conference did not, of course, emanate from the more intellectual philosophy of Hegel, but from spiritual science, the nature of which is wholly spiritual. Again, however, it was Mrs. Mackenzie who discovered that something fruitful for education could be won from spiritual science, which goes beyond intellectuality into the spiritual while taking full account of Hegel. I was also able to speak of our educational principles and their application a second time last year in the old university town of Oxford. Perhaps I am justified in thinking that those lectures, which among other things dealt with how education is related to society, may have induced a number of English people concerned with education to visit our Stuttgart-Waldorf school. It was a great joy to welcome them into our classes, and we were delighted that they were happy with our work and followed it with interest. During that visit, the idea formed to hold this summer course on education. Its roots, therefore, lie in previous activities, and this fact gives us real confidence and courage as we begin these lectures. 
Courage and confidence are needed when we speak of matters still unfamiliar in today's culture, with strong opposition coming from many areas. Courage and confidence are especially necessary when we try to explain principles that would approach, in a creative sense, the greatest artistic achievement of the cosmos, humanity itself. Those who visited us realize how Waldorf education essentially deals with the deepest fibers of modern life. The educational methods applied there can really no longer be described by the word pedagogy, a treasured word that the Greeks learned from Plato and his followers, who had devoted themselves so sincerely to all educational matters. Pedagogy is, in fact, no longer an apt term today, because it immediately shows the bias of its ideals, and those who wished the Waldorf School understand this to begin with. Today, it is not unusual, of course, to find boys and girls in the same classes and taught in the same way, and I merely mention this to show you that in this respect, too, the methods of the Waldorf School are in keeping with recent trends. What does the word pedagogy suggest? A pedagogue is a teacher of boys. Footnote, pedagogue from the Greek word paedagogos, a slave who escorted children to school. And a footnote. We see immediately that in ancient Greece, education was very one-sided. Half of humanity was excluded from serious education. To Greeks, only boys were capable of being fully human and girls had to remain in the background in terms of real education. A pedagogue was a leader of boys and was concerned only with that gender. Today the presence of female students in schools is common, though it is a radical change from not-so-ancient customs. Even today, however, another feature of the Waldorf School will seem strange to many people. Not only are boys and girls considered equal, but even on the teaching staff there is no distinction between the sexes, at least not in principle, even up to the highest classes. Universally human considerations required us to set aside prejudice. First we had to give up all that the old term pedagogy implied before we could establish an education in keeping with modern conditions. This is only one aspect of the educational prejudice implied by the term. In the broadest sense it must be said that until recently nothing was known of the human being as such in education. Indeed, there have been many biased views in the educational world, not only that of gender. According to the old principles, once the years of education were over, did, quote, the human being as such, close quote, step forth? Certainly not. Today, however, people are preparing to look for this, for pure, certain, undifferentiated humanity. From the way the Waldorf School was formed, we can see that this had to be worked for. The original idea was to provide an education for children whose parents were working in the Waldorf Astoria factory. And because the director was a member of the Anthroposophical Society, he asked me to arrange this education. Footnote, the director was Emil Moult, 1876 to 1936, end of footnote.
I was able to do this only on the basis of spiritual science, and so, to begin with, the school arose for humanity as such, fashioned from the working class. It was, in quotes, anthroposophic, only in the sense that the man who first had the idea happened to be an anthroposophist. Thus we have an educational institution with a social basis that wishes to base the whole spirit and method of its teaching on spiritual science. But it was not even remotely a matter of beginning an anthroposophic school. On the contrary, we hold that because spiritual science can always make itself inconspicuous, it can institute a school based on universal human principles, not on social rank, philosophical concepts, or any other particular. All of this may have occurred to those who visited the Waldorf School, and it can be seen in everything we do there, and it may have led to the invitation to give these lectures. In this introductory lecture, since I am not yet speaking of education, let me thank those who arranged this course. I also thank them for arranging Eurythmy performances, which have become an integral part of spiritual science. Let me begin by expressing this hope. A summer course has brought us together. We are gathered in a beautiful spot in northern England, far from the busy winter months. You have given up part of your summer recreation to matters that will play an important part in the future, and the time will come when the Spirit uniting us now for two weeks during the summer holidays will inspire all our winter work. I cannot thank you enough for dedicating your holidays to the study of important ideas for the future. With equal sincerity I trust that the spirit of our summer course will be carried into the winter months. Only then will this course bear real fruit. Allow me to refer to Miss McMillan's impressive words yesterday, which expressed a deep social and pedagogical impulse and showed that we must look for profound moral impulses before human civilization can progress further in terms of education. When we allow the significance of such an impulse to work deeply in our hearts, we are led to the most fundamental problems in modern culture, problems related to the forms that our culture and civilization assume in human history. We are living in a time when certain areas of culture, though standing side by side, remain separated. To begin with, we have all that we can learn about the world through knowledge, for the most part communicated intellectually. Then there is the realm of art, in which we try to express deep inner experiences, imitating divine creative activity with our human powers. We also have the religious endeavors, longings that lead us to unite the roots of our existence with those of the cosmos. And finally, we try to evoke from within ourselves impulses that place us as moral beings in the world's civilized life. In effect, we face four aspects of culture, knowledge, art, religion, and morality. Human evolution, however, has caused these four branches to develop independently, and thus we no longer recognize their common roots. It does no good to criticize these conditions, they are necessary, 
but they must also be understood. Consequently, we will remind ourselves today of the beginnings of civilization. There was an ancient period in human evolution when science, art, religion, and morality were united. The intellect had not yet developed its present abstract nature, and humanity tried to solve the mysteries of existence by using a kind of picture consciousness. Grand images were displayed before the human soul, and these were passed down to us in a decadent form as myths and sagas. Originally they arose from experience and knowledge of the spiritual essence of the universe. There was a time when through direct inner imagination humankind could perceive the spiritual ground of the sensory world. And human beings made this instinctive imagination substantial by using earthly material to make architecture, sculpture, painting, music, and the other arts. In outer material forms, people embodied the fruits of knowledge to their heart's delight. With human faculties, people copied divine creation, giving visible form to all that first flowed into humankind as science and knowledge. In other words, art reflected for the senses all that the forces of knowledge had taken in. In a diluted form, this faculty is revealed again by Goethe in his words, spoken from knowledge and artistic understanding, quote, Beauty is a manifestation of the secret laws of nature, without which they would remain forever hidden from us. Close quote. And, again, quote, Those to whom nature unveils her open secrets are conscious of an irresistible longing for art, nature's worthiest expression. Such views show that we are essentially predisposed to view science and art as two aspects of the same truth. Humankind was able to do this in ancient times, when knowledge satisfied us inwardly by arising as ideal forms before the soul. The beauty that enchanted could be made available to the senses through the arts, and experiences such as these were the essence of early civilizations. And the situation today? Because of everything that abstract intellectuality brought with it, we establish scientific systems of knowledge from which art is eliminated as much as possible. It is believed a great sin to introduce art into science, and anyone found guilty of this is immediately denounced as a superficial amateur. It is said that our knowledge must be sober and objective, and that art has nothing to do with objectivity, but arises only from one's arbitrary will. A huge gap thus opens between knowledge and art and humanity can no longer find a way to cross it. But this is our undoing. Whenever we apply science that is valued because it is free of art, we may in fact be led to a marvelous knowledge of nature, but it is nature devoid of real life. We fully recognize the wondrous achievements of science, yet science has nothing to say when confronted by the mystery 
of humanity. Look wherever you like in today's science. You will find wonderful answers to the problems of outer nature, but no answers to the human enigma. The laws of science cannot approach us. Why? Although it sounds like heresy to modern ears, whenever we approach the human being with natural laws, we must move into the realm of art. Heretical, indeed, because people will certainly say that this is no longer scientific. If you try to understand the human being artistically, you are ignoring the laws of observation and strict logic which must always be followed. However emphatically one may argue that it is unscientific, humanity is an artistic creation of nature. All sorts of arguments may claim that artistic understanding is completely unscientific, but it remains a fact that humanity cannot be understood only through scientific modes of cognition. Despite all our science, we come to a halt with the human being. Only when we drop our preconceptions do we realize that we must turn to something else. Scientific intellectuality must be allowed to move into the area of art. Science itself must become an art before it can approach the secrets of the human being. If we follow this appropriate path of development with all our inner forces, not just looking in an outer artistic sense, we can allow scientific intellectuality to flow over into what I have described as imagination, entitled How to Know Higher Worlds. Footnote. The words imagination, inspiration, and intuition are used here to mean particular levels of inner development. See, for example, Rudolf Steiner title A Psychology of Body, Soul, and Spirit, Anthroposophy, Psychosophy, Pneumatosophy, especially the lecture titled Imagination, Ins- Imagination, Imagination, Inspiration, Self-Fulfillment, Intuition, Conscience. End of footnote. This imaginative knowledge, although an object of suspicion and opposition today, is indeed possible. It is the kind of thinking that is aroused to living and positive activity and does not passively give itself up to the outer world, which is increasingly the mode of thinking today. The difficulty of speaking of things of these things has nothing to do with speaking against the scientific habits of our time. Basically, when one goes into it, one is speaking against all of modern civilization. There is an increasing tendency to disregard the activity of thinking, inner, active participation in it, and to surrender to a sequence of events allowing thoughts to simply run their course without doing anything oneself. This situation began with the demand for a materialistic demonstration of spiritual matters. Just consider a lecture on spiritual subjects. Visible evidence is out of the question because words are the only available media. One cannot summon the invisible by some magical process. All that can be done is to stimulate thinking and assume that the audience will energize their thinking to follow what one can indicate only with words. 
Nevertheless, it frequently happens that many listeners, parenthesis, I, have not of cor- I am not, of course, referring to those in this hall, close parenthesis, begin to yawn because they imagine that thinking should be passive. They fall asleep because they are not allowed, excuse me, because they are not following actively. People would like everything to be demonstrated to the senses and illustrated with slides or the like, which makes it unnecessary to think at all. Indeed, such people cannot think. That was the beginning, but it has gone further. In a performance of Hamlet, for example, in order to understand it, we must go along with the series of events as well as the spoken word. But today drama has been deserted for the cinema, where we need not exert ourselves at all. Images roll off the machine and may be watched passively. Consequently, the inner activity of thinking has been gradually lost. But this is exactly what we must take hold of. When this is done, you will see that thinking is not simply something to be stimulated from outside, but an inner human force. The thinking that is common in our modern civilization is only one aspect of this thought force. If we inwardly observe it from the other side, as it were, It is revealed as the force that forms human beings from childhood. Before we can understand this, we must activate the inner formative force that transforms abstract thought into images. After the necessary efforts, we reach the beginning of meditation, as I called it in my book. At this point, we not only begin to transform ability into art, but also raise thinking to imagination. We are thus in a world of imagination, knowing that it is not a creation of fantasy, but a real and objective world. We are fully aware that although we do not yet possess this objective world itself in imagination, we have the imagery of it. Now the point is to realize that we must go beyond the picture. There is much to do before we arrive at this state of inner creative thinking. It does not merely contain pictures of fantasy, but images that contain their own reality. Next, however, we must be able to eliminate all of this creative activity. We must accomplish an inner moral act. That is, in fact, a moral act within our being. Once we have taken the trouble to achieve this active, imaginal, Thinking, parenthesis, you can read in my book just how uh, you can read in my book just how much trouble, close parenthesis, when all of one's soul forces have been applied and the powers of self exerted to their utmost, then one must be able to eliminate what has been gained in this way. We must develop the highest fruits of thinking, raised to meditation within ourselves, and then be capable of selflessness. We must be able to eliminate all that was gained. This is not the same as having nothing, never having gained anything to begin with. Now, if one has first made every effort to strengthen the self in this way, and then destroys the results through one's own powers, One's consciousness becomes empty and a spiritual world surges into consciousness. It is then seen 
that knowledge of the spiritual world requires the spiritual forces of cognition. Active imaginal thinking can be called imagination. When the spirit world pours into consciousness that has been emptied through the greatest conceivable efforts, it does so by way of what may be called inspiration. Having experienced imagination through the moral act described, we become worthy of grasping the spirit world behind outer nature and humanity. Now, I will try to show you how from this point we are led to religion. Let me point out that inasmuch as spiritual science strives for true imagination, it leads not only to knowledge or to art that itself has the quality of an image, but to the spiritual reality within the image. Spiritual science bridges the gap between knowledge and art. Thus, at a higher level, one more suited to the modern age, the abandoned unity of science and art can re-enter human civilization. This unity must be attained because the schism between science and art has disrupted our very being. Above all, modern humanity must strive to move out of this state of disruption toward unity and inner harmony. So far I have spoken of the harmony between science and art. In the third part of this lecture I will develop this subject further in relation to religion and morality. Knowledge that draws creative cosmic activity into itself can then flow directly into art. And this path from knowledge to art can be extended and taken further. It was extended in this way through the forces of ancient imaginative knowledge, which also found the way directly into the life of religion. Those who applied themselves to this kind of knowledge, primitive and instinctive though it was in early humanity, did not experience it as external, because in their knowing and thinking the divinity of the world lived in them. The creative divine passed into human artistic creativity. Thus, a way could be found to raise physical artistic creations to an even higher consecration. Read that again. Thus, a way could be found to raise physical artistic creations to an even higher consecration. The activity that people made their own by embodying divine spirit in physical substance could then be extended to acts in which, as fully conscious human beings, they expressed the will of cosmic divine powers. They felt imbued by divine creative power. And as this path was followed from elaborating material substance to human action, art passed through ritual into service of the divine. Artistic creation became service of God. What is done in a cult represents the consecrated artistic accomplishments of ancient humanity. Artistic acts were lifted to become cultic acts, thus glorifying God through matter by devotion to God through the service of the cult. 
As humanity bridged the gulf between art and religion, religion arose in full harmony with knowledge and art. Although primitive and instinctive, that knowledge was a true picture, and as such it could lead human acts through ritual to directly portray the divine. In this way the transition from art to religion was made possible. Is it still possible with our present-day mode of knowledge? Ancient clairvoyant perception revealed to humankind in images the spirit in every creature and natural process. And through human surrender and devotion to the spirit and natural processes, the all-creative, omnipotent spirit of the cosmos entered the cult. How do we know the world today? Again, it is better to, to describe than to criticize because, as the following lectures will show, the development of our present way of knowing was needed in human history. Today I am simply presenting certain suggestions. Humankind gradually lost spiritual insight into the beings and processes of nature. Today people are proud of having eliminated spirit from their observations of nature, finally reaching theories that attribute the origin of our planet to the movements of some primeval nebula. Mechanical activity in this nebula are said to be the origin of all the kingdoms of nature, even humanity. According to these laws, which loom so large in our, in quotes, objective thinking, this earth must finally end through a so-called death by heat. All the ideals achieved by humanity, having arisen from nature as a kind of fata morgana, will disappear, and in the end only a tomb of earthly existence will remain. If science recognizes this line of thinking as the truth, and if people are honest and courageous enough to face its inevitable consequences, they must also recognize that religion and morality are also illusions and will never be otherwise. Nevertheless, people cannot endure such a thought, and so they hold on to remnants of ancient times when religion and morality were in harmony with knowledge and art. Religion and morality no longer spring creatively from our inner being. They are based on tradition and are a heritage from times when all things revealed themselves through our instincts, when God and the world of morality were made manifest. Our efforts toward knowledge today cannot reveal God or morality. Science attains the end of the animal species and humankind is cast out. Honest thinking cannot bridge the gap between knowledge and religion. All true religions arose from inspiration. True, the early form of inspiration was not as conscious as that to which we must now aspire, but it was there on an instinctive level, and religions correctly trace their origins back to it. Faiths that no longer recognize living inspiration or revelation from the Spirit in the immediate present, must make do with tradition. Such faiths, however, lack inner vitality and immediate direction of religious life. This direction and vitality must be regained, otherwise our society cannot be healed. I have shown how humanity must regain cognition that comes through art to imagination, 
and then to inspiration. If we regain all that flows from the inspirations of spirit worlds into human consciousness, true religion will reappear. Intellectual discussions about the nature of Christ will cease, for once again it will be known, as it can indeed be known through inspiration, that the Christ was the human bearer of a real divine being who descended from spirit worlds into earthly existence. Without suprasensory knowledge there can be no understanding of the Christ. Before Christianity can once again become deeply rooted in humanity, the path to suprasensory knowledge must be rediscovered. Inspiration must again impart a truly religious life to humankind, in order that knowledge, derived no longer merely from the external observation of nature, may find no abyss dividing it alike from art and religion. Knowledge, art, religion. These three will then be in harmony. Primeval humans counted on the presence of God in human deeds when they made their art a divine office, and when they shared in the fire that can glow in the human heart when the divine will pervades the acts of ritual. And when the path from outer objective knowledge to inspiration is found once again, Religion will flow directly from inspiration, and modern humankind will be able, as was primeval humankind, to stand within a God-given morality. In those ancient days, people felt, quote, If I have the cult, if I have the divine service, if the cult is in the world and I am woven into it, then my inner being is filled so that in the whole of my life, and not only where the cult is celebrated, I can make God present in the world. To be able to make God present in the world, this is true morality. Nature cannot lead us to morality. Only that which lifts us above nature, filling us with the divine spiritual, this alone can lead us to morality. Only that intuition that comes over us when, through the religious life, we place ourselves in the Spirit can fill us with real inmost morality at once human and divine. The attainment of inspiration thus rebuilds the bridge that once existed instinctively in human civilization between religion and morality. As knowledge leads upward through art to the heights of suprasensory life, so through religious worship spiritual heights are brought down to earthly existence, so that we can fill this existence with the impulse of an essential, primal, direct morality actually experienced by human beings. Thus will humans become in truth the individual bearers of a life pulsed through by morality, filled with an immediate moral impulse. Morality will then be a creation of the individual, and the last abyss between religion and morality will be bridged. The intuition in which primitive humans stood as they enacted their ritual will be recreated in a new form, and a morality truly corresponding with modern conditions will arise from a modern religious life. We need this 
for the renewal of our civilization. We need it, so that what today is mere heritage, mere tradition, may spring again into original life. This primordial impulse is necessary for our complicated social life, which is threatening to spread chaos to the world. We need a harmony between knowledge, art, religion, and morality. We need this in a new form, a way to gain knowledge that leads from earth, through inspiration and the arts, to direct life in the suprasensory worlds. Then the suprasensory that we have felt in religion and transformed into volition can once again be grasped and guided into earthly society. Until we see our social problems as matters of morality and religion, we cannot grapple with them deeply, and this cannot be done until morality and religion arise from spiritual knowledge. If humanity regains spiritual knowledge, we will be able to do what is needed and link our continuing evolution to an instinctive origin. We will find what is needed to heal humanity. It is harmony between science, art, religion and morality. The end of Lecture 1